Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC, founder, and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Eugene, really excited to have you on the show. You're the co-founder of Incredible Startup. You have been playing around with generative AI and it's been great brainstorming with you. And so this is a very timely topic about what so many folks are excited, confused, and curious about. So please introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Eugene. I'm the CTO of uilicious.com and our startup actually does automated UI testing. And more recently, we also integrated with generative AI to actually automate the generation of UI testing scripts using AI. And this was actually something that has been in work since the startup founded, uh, where we've actually been building up the data required and the data sets and all that. And with the very recent changes in AI, as everyone has experienced in the past month, things have changed very rapidly and we were finally able to get our test generator out and working into the public and we're starting to get feedback from it. So it's a very exciting time, not just for us as a company, like because not we thought that we would need at least two or three more years to reach this goal, but we finally reached it all of a sudden. But like it's also a very interesting time for me because since I've been working on this I generative field for like for over the past few years, it's like things in the past month alone, there has been more papers I've been reading about AI models and generation, right? Than the number of papers I read in the past few years. It's all because of the explosion now. Everyone is rushing it out and things are moving so fast, right? Like people think it's very fast when you see the open AI chat GPT. Things are even faster on the paper side because it's like a lot of people are saying we have done this theoretically, but trust us, if you have the computing power, you can replicate this. And yeah, it's very interesting seeing these things. Thanks so much for sharing. I want to actually ask about how you're using artificial intelligence to bring it into the product for UIDicious and what exactly are the learnings that you've had from there? One of the things that I actually realized from using artificial intelligence into bringing it into the product is, is I actually realized that one of the difficulties is actually trying to figure out the use case. And it's something that a lot of people labs. In. In, this is a completely new technology that a lot of us do not know what we are going to use it for. I was quite nervous for this. And someone told me to like, hey, why don't you just come up with a list of questions so that you can better prepare in your head what could happen. And then I basically, I don't know what's the list of questions <laughs> because then I have no idea. And I was stuck at it for a week. Then basically that friend eventually said, why don't you just ask ChatGPT? Then I was like, oh yeah, crap. The topic that we wanted to talk about was AI, right? And I've been staring at it for an entire week and I'm like, hey, it's actually, uh, we could have just asked it. And so it's that very obvious thing that you didn't know until you realize it. And that was what I actually felt that a lot of people need to start thinking in the ways of trying to like, hey, how can we apply it? One way that I actually try to phrase it is think of it as one of the most practical ways to put around it because an intern you never expect it to be 100% right. You expect it to get it wrong. You expect to need to fix their work. An intern is also someone that when you come in, you may need to give it some basic pointers and training. You need to prepare like, hey, these are the instructions. Same way as you need to do for the AI bot. And an intern is also someone who, if you can properly set up the process around, can actually bring a lot of value to your company. 
and as long as we use that as a framing, right, I believe that actually a lot of founders can find ways to actually use AI that, that are not so obvious. So for us, it was to create test scripts. We are also exploring other means to using the AI, for example, as our first frontline in customer support. And we are also doing additional tooling into the product. So be it whenever you need to do our end goal for UIDishers is that, hey, all you need to do is tell UIDishers, I want to test this website at this URL and we should come up with a test plan. This is not yet done yet. <laughs> test plan, hey, I'll test this. Is this good for you? Then you say yes. And then you'll just generate all the test scripts. Okay, these are the tests. I ran it. These are the results. We want it to be that seamless and it's all about connecting the dots for, with different AIs along the way. On the technical side, there are just three very big major techniques. Be it this is one, is what you already been doing in ChatGPT, provided some instructions and that, that's just basically prompt engineering and then they do the rest. The other one is embedding, which is basically to do use AI to do searching, which then you can be used to combine with the first AI. And the third one, is to with fine tuning basically AI with custom data, which is the most complicated, but it is also some, something that can be the most useful for let's say things like medical field because you can train it on medical data specifically and make it a medical expert. And once you start understanding these are the three basic building blocks and treat it like functions that you can link together, you can start to realize that hey, actually there's a lot of different combinations of use cases. It's just a matter of do we have the time to build it? And that's what I'm doing for the UI testing industry. And I think a lot of people can do this for other industries, industries that I have completely no relation to. That's why it's something that I would encourage to explore, or at least thinking in those terms, like the intern. I use the intern model a lot because interns need to be paid. That's why I like to remind people. The AI is not cheap. <laughs> so treat it like an intern. We're going to dive into that for sure. Could you share a little bit more about how you move from being a developer to being a co-founder and CTO? Obviously, part of that journey was an entrepreneur first, where both of us were as well. So I wanted to hear a little bit about that journey to decide to be a founder. So for me, my story was actually, I've been coding since secondary school, since the Flash days in the very early, yeah. So I apologize for the countless of Flash pop-up banners I've done. I'm quite sure it annoyed a large percentage of the internet, but I got paid. And the reason why I did that during secondary school was because I wanted to play my Xbox, my PlayStation, and my parents refused to pay anything for it. So I needed to get money one way or another. And that's how I actually started into programming and development. And somehow through some strange twist of it, be it working with basically what was one of my ex-teachers, and then I worked on one project or another, I started being passed around from one company to another. And, and basically, it has always been, hey, we need to do something like this. Do you know how? And I'll be like, uh, I have not done in this programming language, but I can learn. And it's like, okay, sure. And that's what I did. And by the end of like JC, before university, I was already having a resume and job offers that were better than the comp science graduate pay at that time. And so that's how I actually got into programming because I basically decided to you know what? Since I could anyway get a job at any time in this field, I decided to do the most questionable decision in there. And it's like, you know what? Let's just go straight to the startup scene. And I, from then on, I've been hopping, from, I've been working from one startup to another. I have worked in some startups that were, actually this was before startup was even a, a hot word in Singapore. So it was like, like I was working on, like one of the startups that I was working on was doing SMS broadcast. Remember the Singapore Idol era? the voting system and things like yes I was working on those so things like that and somehow I liked the startup scene during the time I enjoyed it 
at that time, it didn't really pay that well. And then subsequently, I was like, okay, I need to stabilize things. I went into the enterprise scene. So I ended up actually doing software development for pretty much all the insurance com- major insurance companies in Singapore, except for Abiba. I want to cross it off my list at some point. I hope Abiba at some point buys this. You are delicious. Because it's a personal thing. I Subsequently, I got tired about enterprise scene and got very frustrated from the testing problem, actually. So where basically a lot of things were tested manually. I had a project that I was working on mobile app where basically the, the CEO misread the mobile app launch date during the AGM. And it was on me and my team to basically rush out the product one month earlier. And because we are in the financial industry, no one wants to make sure, no one wants to cut short the testing. So basically the death time was cut by a month. So I was pissed off of that. And I was like, quite can't we automate this? And Lo and behold, after that, I was like, I'm going to do this. So I went back to startup scene, founded Uralicious with my co-founder, and here we are. There's a lot of noobs out there, right? Because they understand there's engineering, and then there's product, and there's this thing called UI testing, right? Which is your automating. So mm-hmm. why is UI testing important for those who are fresh to the scene or look at it as part of the process? I think a lot of people already have direct experience more of like why they need it and especially when it's not there. Like have like I think a very common frustration is trying to book an airline ticket only for it to have an error or book a taxi ride and only for it to not actually be able to book. And it's not, it's just an error. And that's very frustrating for a user and people lose money. It, it, more like companies lose money if they fail to actually handle these errors. But even more notoriously, I think like a few years back also, like one of the major financial institutes, they made accounting a software error where basically a zero was missing. That was a lot of oh no, that was a lot of money that, that actually went haywire there. So things like that actually cost money in the more literal sense, either on, on a big scale for major errors, or sometimes it's even just on a much more smaller sense. Like I think there was one famous case study for like I think for one of the burger joints in America where they had this very low error rate for a certain checkout process, but when someone fixed it, it was because since it's literally a major America joint. There was like just a million dollar in revenue that they gained just by fixing an error. Yeah, testing is important because you want to make sure that your users are happy. And I guess for business owners, you want to make sure that everything's smooth, especially in this era where basically everything's on the internet. And there's so many browsers, Chrome, Firefox, HIE, and mobile devices is actually an entire rat's nest on its own. Testing itself is actually a pretty hard challenge because not only is internet unstable, you have a lot of low-end Android devices with various screen sizes. That is a very complicated form of testing as well. So it's just more of reducing these errors to make sure that things go smoothly and well. And if your business is important and worth billions of dollars, every fix is worth something. So how does UI testing happen today, right? From Is it a bunch of engineers that's load up their iPhones and everything works and that's good to go. How does it go happen? Do they outsource that? So outsourcing is one common situation, especially in Singapore. But in general, 60 to 80% of the industry still does things very manually. We do have some form of automations here and there with companies like UiLicious. But most people are actually still doing it manually, mostly because engineering manpower is expensive. A lot of existing testing tools, for example, one of the major ones would be Selenium requires you to code in, effectively in a no HTML and CSS to, in order to write the test. And this has nothing to do with 
how the things on the screen look. And I think it's another topic on its own that engineers have been incredibly expensive and a rising cost right now these days that a lot of companies simply ought to either take a calculated risk or to do it manually. In fact, in my experience with a lot of enterprises, what is very common to happen is that before a launch of a major website or app, right, they would conscript the company members internally, the sales team, the salespeople, and so on. And basically, you have a bunch of people with 100 different devices, and they are all just pressing buttons on the screen manually. And I find that ridiculous because, hey, we're going to talk about AI. So we have super advanced things, UI frameworks, AI technologies, serverless, cloud, whatever. You can put in all the high-tech passwords. And then we put everything together. How do we check that it works? A hundred people pressing buttons. And it seems like only a rare few companies can actually, at least traditionally, that's what we are trying to change, can to actually build the technical teams to fully automate all these things. So big names like, for example, Google, Microsoft, are companies that are able to fully automate. Or Facebook as well. But not everyone is Google, Facebook, or Microsoft. So... Hence, this weird situation where despite our progress in technology, we test manually for most parts and we want to change that. We believe that it can be changed. And you mentioned about how you feel like it's ridiculous humans are doing it and you're obviously automating to some extent and yet you're also experimenting with AI. So could you share a little bit about what that transition looks like from your perspective for UILicious? AI has always been towards the end goal for us, mostly because one of the things that when we launched UI Delicious, there was quite a number of testing tools that tried to incorporate AI early. But we felt that it was misaligned mostly because most of the common problems in test automation is that the argument is that it's very brittle. It means, for example, if let's say your test is too specific, let's say I test to click this button on this part of the screen. And for some reason, the UI designer tomorrow said, so test automation, one of the reasons why it wasn't commonly adopted easily, it was because it breaks at these kind of very brittle breaking points where humans don't break. Humans were able to automatically adapt to it. And one of the things that AI was very early on in trying to introduce to testing was that when these things happen, maybe we use the AI to automatically fix the test scripts. This sounds perfectly fine in theory, except that in practice, what we realized, at least at that time when AI was being used, was that, hey, if you started automatically fixing tests, then a lot of testers complain and a lot of project managers complain that sometimes some of the things that were supposed to be bugs got fixed as passed. So at this point, if everything's just automatically fixed to pass, then what's the test for? So, so that was one of the struggles with testing and AI in the early generation when trying to integrate AI. So what we tried to do differently was that we looked at it fundamentally. It's like, no, the problem is not actually on fixing the test scripts after it has run because we felt that if, let's say, your test scripts are designed in a way that was stable and reliable, you shouldn't need to be constantly fixing the test scripts. So that's what we actually did first, without AI, ironically. We wanted to make the test script system reliable and in a way that any tester can view the report and say, hey, this makes sense, I understand it, it's passed. And that was something that was very critical for us. Then after we did that, that was what we initially did during the first few years. After we did that, we wanted to actually tackle the second part of the problem, which is to write test scripts. So a lot of people would have very loosely defined test scripts. If you look at the manual testing world, they'll be like, take for example, how will you write a test script? You'll be like, hey, go to this website, click on these buttons, check everything. You'll probably write in English. Even though UILicious is a testing language, you probably won't write in our syntax. That's where the next step makes sense because that is where 
a lot of people has already their test scripts for manual testers, but written in plain English, they pass around as notes, as Excel spreadsheets, as Google Docs to do this and that. And we wanted to be able to take that, copy and paste it over, and translate it into a more formal testing programming language, which then can be verified that, hey, these are all the correct steps, make the tweaks, and then let it run. So that was something that we tried to build up over, over the years with the data set and something that we are finally glad to actually manage to reach at least the first working version. We felt that was something that the public could start using and that was an exciting thing for us. That brings up to the news of the year, which is generative AI, chat GPT, open AI. So what do you think happened? Because it felt like AI was like this linear path, right? <laughs> which is... Every, it's always coming, it's always coming, but it's not here. And then suddenly over the past year, it just feels, whoa, like it did a little bit of a hockey stick in terms of real life applications, but also I think awareness, at least amongst the tech ecosystem, right? So what do you think happened there for those who are new to this? Well, so one of the things that I found very amusing during the past few months, I think it's a very in hindsight moment for the industry. One of the trends that we had, right? in neural networks was like to try expand the data. It seemed to be somewhat better, but it wasn't a hockey stick better. It was kind of more like linearly better. And one of the things that, that was very interesting that happened recently was that what we were doing previously with at least some of these very large-scale AI models is that we were basically training it with a very broad set of skills that is at the very low level. And so think of it as if I were to do a university grading. So for example, you have a university level AI in a topic and basically a primary school level in a topic. We were basically training the AI to be a primary school level at everything under the sun. So that made what people felt not that practical and useful. But it laid the foundation because what happens is that when primary school became secondary school and secondary school became JC, how many of us can say that we have a secondary school or JC knowledge at every topic under the sun, at every language under the sun? For example, my chemistry is terrible. My biology is terrible. <laughs> Things like that. Like, honestly, don't think I'm any better than the AI in those topics. And the other major thing that we realized is that, okay, why don't we start focusing down on one of these big models, right? And let's just narrowly just train it to be really good at one thing, which is basically following instructions. And this is what OpenAI did. They call it reinforcement human learning. That's the more technical segment. I think someone can search it up if they are more interested. But the thing is an instruction GPT. But basically the key thing is we taught it how to obey instructions. Like how we taught a primary school kid to obey instructions from a parent all the way to secondary to JC. And overnight, these two factors just clicked in. Because now you had trained someone who is able to follow instructions. And now you also have someone who had a very broad knowledge of almost everything. As flawed as it is, it's not going to win any university graduate in a topic. These two things click in education, like we call the T model. And it started working together. And it's very funny because for me, it's like we built neural networks using techniques that we understood from the human mind biology. And who would have thought that a neural network model after a human brain would benefit from training and learning like in education, the T model, the same way a human does. It's one of those very obvious things when now that we know it and learned it, but it was not obvious previously. So now when we actually use the same techniques that we have learned right into smaller models, we realize actually our smaller models that we have built like a few years ago could actually do much better. And that's why you're seeing a lot of sudden jumps. Even though OpenAI is, is like one, is like at the forefront of it, 
they have shared what they've done and people have been taking what they have done and so, okay, why don't we try it on these other AI models? It actually works. It actually makes things much better. And all of a sudden, we have a lot of what was previously not useful AI models being very useful in various use cases. That was literally the case for us. So we had an AI model that was spitting out rubbish test code that was not usable. And we made a change and it's like, oh crap, it's usable. <laughs> that made such a big change. So that's interesting, right? Which is that neural networks on the basis of humans. You know, I just recently had two daughters. One is two years old. And one is a seven-month-old. And my joke I always tell people is I'm also created two neural networks and I'm just watching them slowly engage, explore, <laughs> realize that some things are hot. The food is too hot, so don't eat it. And then slowly learn how to blow on the food to make it cooler. And there's a little bit of that. You can then go through a little bit of a hockey stick. And suddenly now, I think over the past one month, the, there's a bit of an explosion in the words, right? The hockey shape is starting to come up, right? <laughs> Last time she's learned like one word a month and now she's learning, I don't know, 10 words a week, right? So a little bit of hockey stick. So how else do you think it's similar between, I think, what we said, training humans versus training neural networks or AI? What other parallels do you see, I think, from your perspective? I would actually say that that is actually a very accurate parallel besides the time. So like to be observing AI is making mistakes in the very same way that we actually can observe in humans or more, especially in the growing informative here. Like one of the things I noticed recently, for example, I've been training my cats, for example, to sit down to, when eating food. So I always ring the bell, tell them sit, and then I only after they sit there, I feed them the food. So that worked out for most parts. But one of the common mistakes in AI, and we use the term overtraining, is that when the scenario is too exact, they may end up learning things to be too specific. So I assume that they were learning to sit properly when I ring the bell. Turns out one day, when I didn't lay out their food mat, and I ring the bell, they didn't sit. <laughs> it was the food mat that they made them sit, not the bed. <laughs> so I was like, oh, overtraining. <laughs> I've been always training with a bell, a bell and the food mat and I never noticed it. I always thought it was the bell. So these are mistakes that we will see AI make and these are things that we will need to fix. But one thing I would say very, that is very different from a real life human in this case is that, or a cat for that matter, is that once we notice that they learn things, these things wrongly, we just spend the next few years making the change, per se, and then we continue educating them and making the incremental improvement. So we just continue moving on from there. For AI models, one of the big differences is that if we notice that we have made some fundamental mistake in the training flow, sometimes the answer would be to go back to the fundamental, like because we can rewind back their learning, their years of learning that we have built up, Okay, for this year to this year, this training that we did, let's just take it out. Then this is all the data. And we just, in a way that is throwing money at the problem, let's just throw enough GPUs at it to just speed up that whole five years of progress into one month and burn a lot of electricity in the process. And that is something that is very different that we can't do with real life human beings. Yeah is that we cannot go back and reset the process and change things accordingly. Yeah. So if only it was that easy to remove our bad habits. Uh. Now, and I think there's actually a good point, right? I was just actually on a WhatsApp group with a whole bunch of VCs and founders and everybody plays Dota. And what was interesting was that there was a realization that we could ask ChatGPT about Dota strategies. <laughs> and so everyone was just like, so if we have a Triant and a Naga, what are the odds of us winning? And then the answer was actually pretty good, right? And after that, we were like, okay, what's the difference between a 
high skill rating of 600 versus a high skill rating of 700? What's the difference in terms of play style and approach? Who's more likely to win? And it was a really good answer. And the awkward reality I was thinking about it as I was reading it was, I actually can't tell the difference about whether it's a good answer or a bad answer because I'm more of an amateur in Dota than the ability for me to tell the difference whether it's correct or how it could be better versus, of course, on the topics that I have been plugging into it on myself, which has been more like, hey, tell me about, I don't know, the ethics of AI or predictions of AI inside startups. Because I'm an expert on it, it's more obvious for me when the errors are there or what needs to be unlearned or relearned or corrected or edited. And I thought it was an interesting dynamic, right? Because I was just like, you're like you said, there's so many topics that I'm just bad at chemistry, biology, things where if I plug in the chat GPT from a production side, I can tell that there are errors and it can be improved. But from a consumption perspective, if it's an area I'm a non-expert on, it's actually very difficult for me to tell if it's wrong, actually, or even inaccurate. So it feels like there's a quite of an asymmetry there from a human perspective and this dynamic to understand AI. I'm, I'm curious about what you think. Yeah, actually, that is something that I actually flagged out very heavily that is probably one of the biggest danger of this current generation of AI. Even the open AI founders themselves also flag it out. Is that because unless you instruct it specifically, not try to lie or lie may, might be an extreme word, or more try to like guess and make its best shot at it. In the industry, we call it hallucinations. But basically, it's that very smart kid that doesn't have the answer and it maybe took a beer and is half drunk. And then it's like, I'm not 100% sure, but he didn't say that. But I think it's this. <laughs> and, and that's what the AI will does a lot. And the problem is that because it's a really smart kid, it's it can be really hard to tell. So if you're an expert in this field, for example, and you have really studied up about it, okay, fine. But on the flip side, if let's say it's you're not an expert, right? It's nearly impossible to tell. And that's actually a very scary thing that we actually need to put a giant warning label on this technology on. Because, for example, I got it to generate a few recipes just for the fun of it. And it looks very genuine. But I honestly have no idea whether it was good. And so I forwarded it to a few people who actually know cooking, unlike me, who might make the kitchen on fire. And basically one of them said that this recipe will overcook the thing until it's charcoal. <laughs> and I, I did not know that. And if I actually followed it, I might have started a fire. <laughs> so those, that is actually a very genuine danger in, for this topic on its own. Because it's like, 50, 80%, sometimes you get it right, but you actually need someone to fix the 20. And it just becomes, boils down to, do I actually have the expertise and knowledge for it? And yeah, it's the line that we have to be careful about, especially when we start using this, because there's a lot of talk about using this in education, or this can replace teachers, this can replace doctors and all that. And I'm like, someone needs to be there to make sure that people don't learn the wrong things. For it for the teacher, it's the first thing you need to teach a student before they're allowed to use this tool. Okay, you need to be able to fact check it. And that's the first thing you need to learn. And from then on, it's become super useful because hey, having it right 80% of the time, it's very it's already a first step. It's just about asking a 10, 20, 30 times more question and just scrolling quickly through it, iterating through it. So yeah, that's my take on it. Like, because it's a strange new world we live in. We have, we have an answer to everything, but it might not be correct. <laughs> the tricky part is that, like you said, is it reminds me of a phrase where it says, 
a lie can run around the world before the truth can wake up and get his boots on. And I was like, this is exactly what's happening because you can generate so much more content and then to be able to verify it, poor Snopes and all these fact checker organizations that are just doing it by hand. Is this absolutely bonkers, right? And I think the commercial incentive is the part that's really unfair, right? Because if you said, oh, it's a pure marketplace of ideas where every idea would debate based on its merit and honesty, et cetera, then of course the truth will, how do I say, the truth will arise and out, right? But that's not true, right? Because in a marketplace of ideas weighted by commercial incentive, weighted by, I don't know, the ability to spam and get as much SEO for your web page, et cetera. I feel like the world is just weighted, not less towards honesty and less towards truth, like you said, but it's like basically going to the rich kid, right? It's like going to the rich kid, basically telling, going up to the smart kid who doesn't really understand it and say, hey, I'm not asking you to lie, but I need you to generate as much BS as possible so that you and I can make money <laughs> together. And it's a beautiful tag team. I don't know what the end state of that world is going to be. Oh, yeah. That, that's, those are one of the things that keep me up at night because, pardon if this ends up being too politically or touching a political nerve, is that we already had this problem before AI. Like, people were already coming up with bullshit and peddling bullshit to make money, literally, for views and for to peddle their own set of products. And this has been an ongoing problem for the past few years, especially in the US in particular. Even Singapore is not immune to it also. Like, sometimes we... Sometimes a lot of us may have the experience of trying to push back against fake news from our uncle, from our grandmas and so on. Yeah, and it's and trying to correct them. And it's very difficult because it's, it's that lens of credibility, that line. Because one of the most common tactics that will be used is that, hey, this group of people will end up citing other people that as, hey, I did my research, so I cite so it's But they'll cite each other in a circle. This forms those kind of bubbles of effectively fake news. And... People are already doing that with effectively $10, $20 per hour or even less when you contract them in Philippines and so on and India. People were already doing that. Now we have just changed that $5 an hour bullshit generator to $0.05 an hour. And to me, I feel that it's a topic that's not just within AI because we already had this problem. Now it's just going to be amplified. And I think just in this way, we just sped up the roadmap of like, how do we deal with this? And I think the biggest irony from what I'm observing, and, and I'm observing this from myself because now, especially in this topic space, there's a lot of random people talking about random things, speculating from the end of the world to the next renaissance, right? I find myself following more and more specific people rather than actually a lot of aggregation sites people who are like experts in their own respective field, like so some AI experts and also some engineering experts who are at the top at their field, for example, Casey Hightower for Kubernetes, Sean for, let's say, uh, currently more towards AI because they will actually be filtering through the noise of the news and presenting it to the audience. And in a way, we have gone full circle into subscribing potentially to expert magazines, though it's not magazines, it's their substack that I'm subscribing to to actually filter out this information for us, which then is a question right now for me, is this going to be the next phase of how content is created where basically you have to have trusted and verified content creators effectively? Or is the flood of AI content and fake content going to be the going to be a norm that we have to get used to? 
I'm not so sure which direction you'll face. I just hope that maybe we go the full circle route because at least we have a happy ending in that route. <laughs> I think it's going to be both. Now, I remember this phrase I learned about two years ago, right? And it was like, flood the zone of shit, <laughs> which is a tactic that was described in politics, which is when something is contrary to what you want to want to be said, you just flood the zone of just more and more news. And then all the shit basically overwhelms the thing. So if you have a hundred shit pieces and you have one really good article, which is how echo chambers happen and everything. So I think it's going to be both, right? I think it's just going to be like, I don't know, the internet's just going to be full of shit. <laughs> and then a whole bunch of people are just going to become like, the world is full of Oreos and processed food. And then some people are now fasting in order to avoid processed foods. Most people will just consume everything. And some people, a very small section of people are just going to do like we said, right? Just only follow human verified creators, no AI inside things. So this is going to be the information bacon. <laughs> What's the, what is the solution? Like what we need to create truth seeking robots. Do we need to create AI that automatically labels content as AI? I think I started to see that in Reddit, I think, which is the bots that say, oh, this content came from somewhere else, which is like source finder. Maybe there should be like, what, hunter-killer robots, <laughs> AIs that tell you how much AI content is in the text blurb. Actually, that might not be a bad idea. So th there's one move right now that people are trying, which trying to create an AI that detects AI. But honestly, I feel like this is a fruitless cat and mouse game. Because the moment that came out less than one day, someone already figured out how to tell the AI to generate it in another way that bypasses it. But I think the other one that you have suggested where basically does the fact check that might might be a necessary step forward as a potential way to, to counteract this so whenever someone posts something effectively it does the research on the topic and it's like hey this was said by so and so check the citation or actually it's this person said some, something else instead and is that possible I believe so but is that something that's practical it's actually a lot of computational power needed just to do that and but it might be the necessary evil of future that we head towards. And another thing that actually I find it a bit intimidating sometimes with this progress is that one of the potential dangers right now is that because open AI right now, for example, they state that AI has been trained up to this date, 2021, uh, for example. I think the, one of the things that we have to be careful of is from this day onwards, effectively, if we start training it on the whole of internet, let's say from this day onwards, how are we going to, if we don't filter out the things that people are coming up out of thin air, it's going to be fed into the data, which is then going to be fed to the next AI. And basically, we are going to have AI generating crap that you learn from and it will just rinse and repeat. And that is going to be something that we need to counteract on with maybe, let's say, this citation AI or fact-checking AI or so on and so forth. Whether this is the best answer, I honestly don't know because I think... Look at how people reacted in very violent ways or very objectionable ways about fact-checking systems on Twitter, for example. Like, they viewed it as a form of censorship. So, yeah, it's a question that we need to ask as a society to, like, is this what we need to move forward? And honestly, I have no idea on that space. I think we do. Hope that we could just find a better solution. But this might be a necessary evil. Yeah, you suddenly reminded me of eutrophication. I'm not sure you remember that about the negative feedback cycle for ponds of water, right? And ammonia. So there's a certain level of ammonia and the ecosystem normally is a positive feedback loop where it 
you know, is a hemostasis, it stays in balance. But sometimes if you add a whole bunch of fertilizer, basically the algae just be, could go out of control and then just eat up everything in the pool. They block up the sunlight and the whole pool just dies. So you just suddenly made me remember this AI thing can just swamp the internet with so much shit, right? <laughs> the internet may just basically effectively become unusable for all certain purposes, like fact, facts or honesty, right? And just kills the thing. And then everybody retreats to like private messaging channels. It's a good point that you raised about how the internet can kill itself by, I don't know, AI iterating on previous AI generated information. I guess one question I have is when you think about that, how do you think engineers and CTOs should build responsibly while being self-aware that there is a bit of an arms race and that someone else is going to do it eventually as well to some extent? So how do you think about that from... I don't know, code of conduct or stewardship perspective. I think this is also one of the hot topics actually when it came to AI art in particular. But I'm firmly in the camp that, that we should actually start splitting up very clearly the data collection phase and the AI training phase. So the data collection phase, right, we should learn to recognize it as its own form of phase and how we do that. And I would argue for actually that during the data collection phase, we should be handling copyright sensitive material in a very respectful and friendly way. So if I say the site says no scraping, one of the issues that's actually happening right now in the AI space, for example, is that uh, we have an argument that is being made that, hey, since AI learns like a human, even though you have a no scraping rule, it's like a human that visited your website and saw your website and learned from your website. That was the argument that was being made when they merged the two together. So the AI do the script and learn from it directly. And they further reinforce that, hey, this is fair use because this AI is now going to be open source and to the public. Only for that very same company to have a commercial business that use that open source model and then sell it. I feel that we may need to start taking better response stewardship to the data that we input, be it for copyright, be it for fake news, be it for false content. And that is something that companies should actually strive for to bring more transparency on in the process. Subsequently, the next step would be the training side. We have already reached the point, right, where AI models are learning from text and literature and all that, right? More than a hundred times an average human will ever read in their lifetimes. Basically, one of the problems I would say for AI is that it's very inefficient in learning compared to a human. For example, if let's say if let's say you were to read like one textbook, for example, you already learned your physics to or chemistry or math to a good degree, maybe with a good teacher as well. For an AI model, maybe one textbook is not enough. Maybe it needs to read 300 different textbooks to finally understand. Yeah. So that is something that on the training side we can improve on. Because one professor actually jokingly, just for the fun of it, went to do the projection. Hey, at the rate we are growing on the amount of data that we need to feed to grow the AI, right? We will run out of words on earth, right, within the next 30 years. <laughs> because we've been scaling up at the data side, right, to improve the AI, right? When we actually, right, that we should actually be the, probably starting to look into improving the efficiency of training the model so that we don't need the whole of the internet to train the AI model. We probably need something that's closer to what a human would experience in their lifetime. And then from then onwards, if the data demands isn't as huge, then a lot of the ethical copyright concerns can actually be reduced because then this data can now be start being shrunk into a smaller set that is now usable 
and more verifiable for all parties involved. Yeah. So I think that's a direction that we need to work towards. Whether I'm not so sure how long it will take us. Maybe we will need to read the whole of internet in 30 years first before we actually shrink it up. <laughs> yeah, I think it's spot on about data ingestion, right? So right now I can label my web page to do not crawl, right? So it should not be indexed by a search engine, right? But I'm pretty sure that means that all my past blogspot and blogs and Tumblr posts have all been indexed into you know, ChatGPT, for example. I feel like that's already done. I don't know I don't know how you can unscramble an omelette and put it back in the eggs. So I think looking forward a little bit, obviously, there's obviously, we see generative content that's happening in text, right? We see that happening for art. Definitely, I think we see that in video as well, where video filters are doing a tremendous job. I was at a live streaming event by Bigo Live. And it was interesting because I could see the video streamer, live streamer in real life and I could see what exactly they look like and then I could see on the app that they look quite different (laughs) (laughs) in terms of complexion, chin shape, nose dimension. It was kind of crazy to see both of them, those differences. Obviously, there's going to be more and more generative video as well, right? So what do you think is that world? I think I was reading a comic. It's like, Maybe the end state of this is we end up living in a less human world. That was by Penny Arcade. It was very depressed, I think. We end up with a world full of AI, avatars and role models and things like that. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah so it's, it's not just pretty much any generative content. Even music actually is also an, another one. There's already been a few models that are out there. People don't think that it's as good as pop music, but let's just give it time. That's what I'll say. But okay, I'll first say the most positive thing because since I've been rather negative, on for most parts. I would say the most positive take will be what, what Sean proposed, uh, one of the tech influencers that I follow, is that generative AI could be potentially portals to new worlds. So I experimented this on a, another podcast we, we, as well with a fellow entrepreneur where basically we use the AI to say, hey, let's do an adventure in this world. And you can just imagine it along those lines. So for example, if let's say a uh, Star Wars chapter from this episode to this episode, maybe even a specific book or a Harry Potter universe or a Star Trek universe on this planet. Because since the literature was there and the AI learned from it, you can actually generate stories in that world, in that flavor. And this is more like things that the AI already learned. Moving it forward, we could potentially see in a positive sense that artists or game designers, obviously world builders effectively at this point, design these worlds, right? by instructing the AI that, hey, instead of this, I prefer it this way to just create these virtual worlds for people. We are going to see like very different worlds accordingly, whether that's through a metaverse headset, which maybe not, or maybe just the LCD screen, even that would be interesting. That's another question. But the most positive thing would be we will get to see a new way to experience entertainment, like in the form of video games, but in a lot more. Like, even without going that full nine yards where basically the AI generate the whole world and the stories and the characters and everything, even on a much smaller scale, I'm actually looking forward to the next two to three years in indie gaming because one of the most common problems for some of indie gamers, at least the games creators, at least the smaller studios was, hey, I cannot create a story I can think of. I can make the game interaction and game engine. And actually, I do play some of the indie games. But now, now that they effectively have an AI art generator or even let's say a conversation generator, they 
these indie games can actually have, have the tools to create something very new and very vast at their fingertips. Like, take conversation, even like random NPC conversations. The reason, in particular NPCs and not humans, because I realize players like to come up with things to mess up the system. <laughs> players are like the worst rebels because we are like, do terrible things like destroy the shop or things like that. But like, NPC to NPC interactions can be a lot more lifelike in these worlds. And that is not using new technology. It's literally using what we have now. You can, I mean, people have done it for fun already. Get two AI bots to just talk to each other. And, and you can just see a conversation, pretend to be two different characters and they just talk to each other. And that was actually, it was a really interesting thing to see that. And I'm like, man, this will come into games. So that's what I think in that positive angle. You know, wrapping things up here. Could you share with us a time that you personally have been brave? I think I touched on this. Wait, so why? So my parents were Asian. And yeah, I think one of the hardest things that I had to decide on early on was to not go to university. My And to literally just embark on the path to a startup. And this was many years ago, before even startup was it. Team. So it was a very strange thing for my parents to grapple with because they, like, like with a lot of Asian parents, they, they actually grew up with the fundamentals of, hey, get to university, get a job. And I decided to choose otherwise. And it may not sound, it may not necessarily sound like one of the bravest things like in terms of adversity, but to go against your parents, it was something that was personally difficult. And it was personally a challenge for me because being an entrepreneur or subsequently like doubling down a startup, like it was one thing to be a startup employee. It's another thing to be a startup founder to go down that route because it's not a common thing until more recent years. Your whole family assumes the default failure. And that was difficult. Your friends, a lot of them did so as well. That was something that I found personally challenging to which I'm actually glad actually now that in more recent years have changed very drastically, extremely drastically because of how startups are now more accepted in the mainstream right now as a potential career path because quite frankly, we have been starting to see successful startups be it Grab, uh, be it Foodpanda and so on. Like if people start to recognize these things and we started moving away from the MNC mindset, and yeah, and then I think I credited it's like there was only one family member that was really supportive of me. And that was, it was that isolation feeling that actually felt very difficult. Things have gotten much better with my parents naturally over the years as we, as basically people became more receptive of startups. And yeah, that was something that I've struggled with. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd like to paraphrase the, I think the three big themes that I got from this. The first, thank you so much, is kind of like your excitement and passion about the implications of the generative AI boom. Just seeing how it's blooming and growing and talking a little bit about how it was um, obviously initially designed from a data perspective to, I think, the key innovations and understandings that unlocked the explosion, right, of its capabilities and talking about how it will actually continue advancing in the future. The second that was really interesting was obviously the exploration about what is going to happen to society from the easy, which is like indie games for NPCs all the way to fake news and somewhat good news. And I think we talked about how the AI isn't lying, at least not intentionally yet. 
but is trying to make things up, right? And those hallucinations are going to have real life consequences to how we live, operate, and interact with one another. Lastly, we also got to dive into UI testing from why is it important to how it's currently being done to how you're looking to automate it, but also drive and enrich it with AI as well. Thank you so much, Eugene, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It was a blast for me. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.